Welcome to The Dirt on Organic Farming, a podcast from the Organic Agronomy Training Service. Our aim is to bring skeptical agronomists and crop consultants into the organic conversation by analyzing six common criticisms and openly discussing the sometimes messy promise of the organic opportunity. The podcast format combines expert interviews with real-world examples to get beyond us versus them and towards a more informed understanding of organic agriculture. I'm Nate Powell-Palm. And I'm Mallory Krieger. We're the hosts of The Dirt on Organic Farming. I think that's one thing that keeps some conventional guys out is the transition. You know, thinking they're going to lose a bunch of money during transition and then when they get certified, the premiums won't be there. Right now, there's a lot of skepticism in the mindset of conventional farmers to transition into organic. You know, they're concerned about weeds, they're concerned about fertility, they're concerned about markets. But a lot of guys just express the belief that they don't think they could do it. In this episode, no tools, no premiums. Organic transition is a trap. General Mills is a proud sponsor of oats. As the largest producer of natural and organic packaged food in the U.S., the company is committed to supporting farmers in transitioning to organic and promoting continuous improvement of organic standards and practices. Learn more at generalmills.com. Oats is brought to you with funding support from Stonyfield. As the country's leading organic yogurt maker, Stonyfield takes care with everything it puts into its products and everything it keeps out. By saying no to toxic, persistent pesticides, artificial hormones, antibiotics, and GMOs, Stonyfield is saying yes to healthy food, healthy people, and a healthy planet for 38 years. Stonyfield is a certified B Corp and is also helping to protect and preserve the next generation of farmers and families through programs like its Direct Milk Supply and Wolf's Neck Organic Training Program, as well as Stony Fields, a nationwide multi-year initiative to help keep families free from toxic persistent pesticides in parks and playing fields across the country. All right, episode six. Man, we have covered a lot of material from addressing concerns about weeds and tillage and talking about the science behind organic and addressing yield drags and concerns about markets. All of these topics set us up for the discussion we're going to have today when we put it all together in is transition a trap? Is transition to organics just this insurmountable barrier or what is it going to take um, to get across that finish line going from conventional to organic farming. And so we're going to hear from a, quite a few folks in this episode that we heard from last episode and, uh, and take a deep dive into some of these topics. Yeah, you know, transition, it's the big question. It, it, when, whenever a farmer is looking at becoming organic, like there's a lot that weighs on your mind. And the, the big question is, is it going to work? Will everything crash and burn? Will I ruin my farm? And I hope that listeners who listen to this episode today are going to take away from it that there are really serious things to consider when transitioning, and it needs to be taken with a certain amount of weight, but it's absolutely possible and you can make it through to the end. And I'm hoping to take that, are we going to crash and burn question, really hit that 
nail on the head and take a deep dive into addressing that because I think that concern is so valid. Two of the experts that we heard from last episode um, shared some of their concerns and, and barriers that they see into the transition process. Ben Bowl described the certification process itself can be a challenge. If we recall, Ben is the organic education specialist at Oregon Till. I would say one of the big challenges that, that Tilth sees in terms of producers coming in is just they're not completely ready to get certified organic. And so that could be on understanding of regulations or maybe they have or paperwork requirements or they're just their general readiness isn't there. And that becomes a challenge. And Tilth has really been trying to add front end support before producers end up before they go through the certification process and then see some of these big challenges of particularly related to the certification side, but um, to try to help figure out some of those things in advance so that there's not as much challenges. Once you get certified and you send out the inspector for the first or second time and you see a lot of issues there. And this is a really, it's an important discussion because every single farmer has to go through certification. Certification is a big undertaking, a big part of every transition. But I will say as someone who's been certified since 2008, so looking at, what would that be, 13 years now, man. Um, So 14 inspections we're coming up on. And once you get a rhythm and once you get used to a certifier, it does get easier. You do get a system and you get a comfortability that makes it so it's not such a daunting uh, prospect. Ryan Corey from Mercaris, who joined us last episode, talked about how management style is a really important factor in transition. The one thing I always try to keep in mind when I think about organic, and especially when you talk about it relative to conventional, is you know, really all you're talking about is a farm management style. Ryan went on to say that the data that he has shows that farms are able to navigate transitions successfully, especially uh, when it comes to their agronomics and finding markets. And even large scale farms are able to do this successfully. But the point that he was making is that one of the biggest challenges that any individual farmer has when they're going through transition is shifting their mindset. The mindset is, is one of the biggest transformations that happen on a farm when going through transition. And Ryan's observations are supported by some research done by the Canada Organic Growers Group. They did a series of interviews with their members to find out what barriers the farmers faced when they were looking at transition. And one theme that just kept coming through was this mindset theme. There are two direct quotes from farmers that they interviewed that I think sum this up really perfectly. The first is, quote, the most important aspect is the transition of the mind. If you're not with it mentally, it's not going to work. The second being, the main barrier is believing that it would work. The biggest change is between your ears. And Nate, this lines up so perfectly with what I've experienced in working with many farmers who are considering transition. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think it lines up with my own experience as a transitioning organic farmer and a lot of my neighbors um, who have done the transition themselves. You really see that you go from um, a really reductive mindset for how do you chase bushels and how do you use inputs and how do you kind of 
constantly think of a math equation rather than how do you take a step back and identify what is the whole system doing and how do we engage it to maximize it. And so I think, you know, in looking at this conversation we're having today, um, when I was transitioning, the, the biggest thing that I found was looking at how do I trust that this system really works. I think that we're taught to try to control the system and try to fight it and try to put it into a series of boxes. But when you really let the system run and just work to enhance it, it's a pretty incredible machine. Totally. Um, you know, you're an organic farmer, Nate. And so I really feel like I can lean on you and, and trust what you have to say because you've lived it. It's, you know, it's one thing to have studied something and done surveys and collected data and observations, not undercutting the, the, the importance of any of that. But when I'm learning, I want to learn from people who did it themselves. And, you know, farmers are the best source of information on transition. And I love to talk to farmers about their experiences and have them share what's worked and what's not. So I'm really eager to dive into these details with some farmers. So tell me, do you have any farmers lined up for us today? I won't let you down. We have farmers today. And I couldn't agree more. I think that the practice of transition is what helped me learn the most quickly. Just being able to ask, what did you do in your transition? And anecdotally, how did you overcome some of these challenges? So Aaron Butler, who we heard from in last episode, gets us started by describing his experience with transitioning land. As a reminder, Aaron farms about 60 miles west of Chicago, raising organic corn, soy, and small grains. Before we went organic, we were um, actually still relatively diversified compared to most of our conventional neighbors because of the fact that we had a fair amount of livestock. My, my grandfather and his brother had been in the cattle business. They closed that up just a little bit before I uh, came on the scene when I got out of high school, but um, our, our family had been growing oats and hay in a rotation forever because we always had cattle. And then we increased the size of the sheep flock when my grandpa and uncle quit feeding cattle and uh, kept right on with the, uh, with the oats and the hay in the rotation because we needed them for the sheep flock. So our rotation included, you know, alfalfa and small grains to up to the point where when we decided to become organic, it made the switch a little easier for us because we already had experience growing small grains and alfalfas and clovers. So we, we had our feet wet a little bit in that part of the organic world. So it was mostly just an issue for us of figuring out how to do uh, uh, mechanical weed control effectively and figuring out what kind of varieties worked well in our system and figuring out timing for planting and all that kind of stuff. You know, a big question that all farmers really need to consider is what pace they're going to take when it comes to transition? How fast are they going to do it? Super key, like probably one of the biggest considerations before you even think about the agronomy is how much risk are you willing to stomach? And so I think a really important thing is to look at if you can, with confidence, transition a portion of your farm and feel like it's going to be your whole farm is going to keep going and it's going to be all right. You're not going to take on too much risk. That's the right amount for you. So I posed that question, what's the right pace? And wanted to hear about the history of Aaron's transition to certified organic. When we first started out, we were farming approximately 500 acres. And even farming on that acreage, we didn't transition it all at once. We started out with uh, 
I think 160 the first year and then added another 160 the next year and just kind of did it slowly. And then as we were able to uh, rent or buy more land, we uh, transitioned it as we got a hold of it. And um, we're up to the point now where we farm about 3,600 acres. I think Aaron brings up a really good point here. If you're an expanding farm, which I think in some ways most farms are, you're leasing new ground or going to rent a little bit more ground, you're likely going to end up conducting more than one transition. Every time you take on a new lease of a conventional piece of ground, once you're organic, you're likely going to transition that. So identifying that surefire transition plan and perfecting it over time is a really worthwhile endeavor because we're probably going to do it as farmers a few times. So figuring out how to do it better every time is a really good use of our time. All right. Well, I know I want to know this. I'm pretty sure our listeners want to know this too. What's the plan, Nate? What crops should I grow? What order? Give it to me. You know, I'm just waiting for someone to hand me an app that I can just put in my field ID and it'll tell me what crop to grow. I want something as prescriptive as that. But unfortunately, there's a lot of nuance to it. That being said, there are a lot of factors that go into these decisions. And so I wanted to hear from someone who's transitioned farm after farm over the last 20 years um, and done so successfully. So I threw the question to Aaron again to hear his answer. Well, every farm is different. It kind of depends on what crop it had on it the last year of conventional growth. Typically, around here, a lot of guys grow corn. There's a lot of corn growing in our part of the world. So a lot of the farms we we come upon have had corn the previous year. And in that situation, we normally follow it with soybeans, our first year of transition. And then the second year of transition, we grow a small grain, either oats or wheat. And that that small grain crop is then followed by a cover crop. And the cover crop, of course, is the key to making an organic system work, is you have to implement cover crops in your rotation some way or another. And that year we have cover crops, small grains and cover crops, gives us the opportunity to do some soil testing, see what kind of uh, shape the farm is in. By then you've had a year to kind of assess, you know, what kind of situation, how healthy the soil might be or how unhealthy the soil might be, depending on the farm. And uh, gives you an idea of what things you should add, or maybe what kind of cover crops you should try to be implementing, what kind of fertility amendments the thing might need. So that's our, our typical now we do have farms occasionally that come in with other crops. Like we had a farm last year that had beans on it. So we grew small grains on that the first year we grew oats and then followed with a cover crop. And a lot of the, the fertility amendments kind of depend on number one, how the soil tests look and number two, how the soil works. So Aaron's farming a lot of leased ground and here where I'm at in Illinois, leased ground is, is the majority of ground that people are farming. So Nate, what happens if you gain the lease on a place that was not farmed very well. What strategies can a farmer use to fire up that soil microbiome, get those nutrients cycling faster after a field's really been run down? Super good question. And I think that, to be honest, you know, most farmers don't have the luxury, um, especially farmers who rent, of following only perfect farmers. We're going to come across fields that were treated poorly, run down, kind of mined of their nutrients. And so I posed this question to Aaron to hear what his experience has been transitioning poorly managed fields. One of the farms we, we rented this year had been, had been pretty run down. Um, it was, the soil test numbers were very, very low. Um, and the soil was just, 
it was just really hard to describe you know it's uh, people say this and it sounds cliche but the soil was just dead you know it was it was just as hard as concrete the tillage equipment would hardly go in the ground when we were working it to seed the oats um the oats did very poor they were just really really poor oat crop uh, we had a tough year for oats anyway but this farm was even tougher than all our other farms it was it was pretty tough um so we just after we got the soil test back and you know watched these poor oats suffer all summer we had seeded it down to uh, oats with a cover of alfalfa and clover under it and the alfalfa and clover were struggling too because it was it was just doing so everything was just so beat up on this poor farm so we we worked the alfalfa and clover in after we got the oats off and we spread just a boatload of compost and chicken manure and limestone you know we just addressed it with with everything we could we could possibly think of to try to help this poor farm out and uh, seeded it back down to more cover crops to try to try to get them to give it a good shot in the arm it's it's it had a real good cover of oats and what we put on there oats and uh, sun hemp and radishes for fall growth so you know it's every farm is different in transition it's really really hard to describe but there's there's some farms that that the soil has just has more life in it and they they take right to it and do real well and there's other farms that just are suffering something terrible and it really takes quite a few years for them to to get their biological activity back up and and get the ability to have soil that looks like it's healthy so every farm is different i wish i could give you a more definitive answer but it's really there is no definitive answer to a question like that so the way aaron describes these fields i think as an organic farmer i really see bright lights and music on the one description of healthy fields. And I see just this money pit and stress on unhealthy fields. Because when you talk about going organic, what you're really talking about is engaging with a living soil, a soil that actually makes its own nitrogen, a soil that is cycling nutrients and bringing all of these natural resources to build a great crop versus just being a a growing medium. It's not just sand that you put nutrients on and try to pop a seed in. But Mallory, I'd be interested in in your assessment um, and what your take on farmers transitioning from not just seeing their soil as this medium to be manipulated, but as this real living organism, this asset that itself pays dividends. Yeah, you know, I, I work with a lot of grazers and a lot of times they'll say, you know, I'm not a cow farmer, I'm a grass farmer. And that analogy holds true for grain farmers. You know, when you're an organic grain farmer, you're not a grain farmer, you're a soil farmer. It's about investing in that soil because when you've got good primed soil, and I don't mean prime as in, you know, it's rating from USDA, I mean primed, like you've got biology in there that is working for you and cycling those nutrients those soils give back to you as a farmer. They provide you with resilience in times of drought and in times of um, excess water. And this transition period is a time where you can invest and build that soil so that it's paying off for you when you have achieved certification and you're able to capture that premium. So rather than thinking about um, just trying to grow corn and soybeans throughout transition, Think about making that investment in the soil because it's going to make your life easier once you get to be organic. I cannot tell you how much I dig the idea of being a soil farmer. 
I'm ready for that t-shirt and I'm ready for that hat. And honestly, when people tell me what, like they ask, what do I grow? I'm just going to say, I grow organic matter. And that's really my, my focus and my goal. Um, but I also think that there's, you know, when we think about this, there's just so many ways to transition a field. And I think a big benefit I've had is I've seen a lot of organic farms. I've been on a lot of organic farms. I've talked to a lot of organic farmers. And so I want to bring in a fresh voice, um, someone we also heard from last week. But to add to this conversation, Will Glazik, I wanted to ask him how he transitions fields. Remember, he farms corn, soy, small grains, and hay um, in East Central Illinois. We started mostly with small grains, so wheat or rye or oats, and we did a lot of soybeans. We didn't do any corn. Uh, I think if I was to go back and do it again, if I had the market, I would put it all into alfalfa for two years or just leave it lay um, as a cover crop for two years. All right, I just want to make sure I heard him correctly, Nate. Did Will just say that he's going to leave that alfalfa delay? This was one of the more, I thought, fascinating transition techniques and plans because Will is an evangelist for raising alfalfa through transition for a number of reasons. I'm going to let him fill in the details. Yeah, this is a process that we use in transition and we also use it in organic. It's called a lay, spelled L-E-Y. It means a a year of green fallow where you have a growing cover crop and and you just give give that back to the soil because managing hay can be a lot of work it can be very time consuming and time sensitive in our area we have a, a limited hay market and selling hay does remove a lot of fertility from the ground so what we do instead is we will take our grain crop off and then typically that that'll be wheat or cereal rye planted in the fall then in february through april whenever the ground's fit we will plant uh, a mix of red clover and alfalfa that will grow under the small grain crop i guess if we're doing oats we'll plant the the legume mix with the oats at the same time then anyways we'll in the summer we'll combine our small grain the uh, alfalfa clover will, once the canopy's opened up, it'll really start to grow underneath uh, in the stubble. Then I use a, a disc mower later in, in August or September to mow that down, because typically we'll get uh, a flush of foxtail, maybe some common ragweed. And before those weeds are able to make mature seeds, I get in there and I mow it. And then we just leave it and, and let it uh, mulch on the ground. Next spring, you know, the clover and alfalfa will really wake up. And normally we will let it grow until it's pretty stemmy. We try to let it get as big as possible before we mow it. And that works out really well with planting too. Try to get all of our corn planted uh, in May and, and beans planted maybe in the later part of May or early June. Then we'll go mow all of our lay acres. And then that gives us a nice time to get back to cultivation before we start grain crop harvest again in the summer. Okay, so I just wanna pause here. 
and I want to bounce some things off you, Mallory. In my experience, when I'm discussing transition with farmers, on the whole, when when they're devising their transition strategy, usually the first place they go in their thought process is how do they get some sort of premium in that transitional period? How do they raise maybe a value-added non-GMO corn that they can get a little bit of a premium? It's not organic, but they're feeling like they're getting something to compensate for that yield loss. Have you heard similar scenarios? Yeah, I hear from a lot of farmers considering transition, that they're looking for ways that they can start to get premiums earlier, that they want to be incentivized to like put their time and energy into that 36-month transition. But I, I kind of push back on that a little bit. Um, as we talked about before, uh, we heard from Will, the, the transition is a time for investment. It's a time for banking nutrients and growing organic matter so that once you have that, that organic certificate at the end of the 36-month transition, you've got a system that has been charged up and primed and ready to go so that you can pull that premium off of really healthy, amazing cash crops. So when you're looking at a soil that's been mined for years, you got to put in the time and the investment to bring it back around. And when Will's talking about his lay acres, I think of it as growing your inputs, that it's not a waste. It's not lost profit. It's, it's an investment in your inputs and your fertility and your organic matter so that you're heavy feeding cash crops that are expensive and don't perform well during transition. They are held off until you get that certificate so that those heavy feeding cash crops have something to eat. They have something to feed off of. And then you're making bank. And I think that really aligns with this idea of transitioning the mindset. When you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to normally pay for fertilizer. That's just one, a line item on my spreadsheet that I'm going to have to pay out each year. When you just replace that with, I'm going to grow that fertilizer. I'm going to think of it as an expense, but it's an expense I'm expecting to get a return on. Um, one thing I would just tack on to that, you said that so well. One thing I'd add on is just, when you transition a conventional farm to organic, typically you're going to start that transition with some amount of NPK banked from those conventional fertilizers. And that NPK is going to, if managed right, chill out in that soil and cycle, but really remain and build up in that soil and then be ready for you when you can capture that premium when you're certified organic. So I'd say trying to bank as much of that in preparation for that real premium, that first year certified organic corn where you're really going to make your best money, be patient for that. And you're going to realize a lot better return than trying to mine the soil in sort of a scramble to get through transition. Um, as an alfalfa advocate, I wanted to hear what Will thought about raising more traditional row crops, that idea of raising non-GMO corn during the transition. I never recommend anyone to ever raise transitional corn. My experience has been that corn is a very heavy feeder. And if you don't have a good stand of cover crop, you're going to have to bring on a lot of manure. That's going to get really expensive. Conventional corn prices aren't high enough to uh, make it profitable. So you're going to take a, you're going to have a lot of expense. Your yields are going to be low and you're going to sell it cheap. During transition, we have to do everything we can to think about the 
first year organic corn crop. That's our that's our target in transition is to set up that farm to raise organic corn the first year possible. Yeah, it sounds like Will has a lot of confidence in relying on cover crops and forage crops during transition. Did he mention if there were other crops that he likes to use along with alfalfa? Yeah, Will definitely emphasized the key role that alfalfa plays, but he also said um, a major tool in his transition toolbox and and something he uses his, in his rotation in general is rye. I found that you know, I have a couple go-to cover crops and that's always, so I always, before I raise soybeans, whether transitional or organic, I always put a cover crop of cereal rye out. Uh, that has been the best way to guarantee a higher yielding soybean crop because it does such a good job of controlling foxtail. Mm-hmm. And I found that when I have high levels of foxtail, I have really poor soybean crops and cereal rye is is pretty much always available it's relatively inexpensive and you can grow your own right here in the midwest red clover and alfalfa are my other go-tos i always use those ahead of uh, corn there are some really good seed houses in the area that can get non-gmo untreated clover and alfalfa uh, as well as there are farmers around that grow it. So you can buy direct from another farmer. Uh, that does help bring the, the cost down some. I want to pause here for a second just to reflect on what Will said. I think this also, you know, really, it falls under that same idea of a paradigm shift, a shift in mindset. When we're trying to just mimic our conventional rotation and basically just force it into that that organic box, but ultimately try to do as many of the same practices as we possibly can. That's where we, you know, run into problems. We just sort of waste a lot of time, resources, and don't make nearly as much money. But what Will just said, talking about, you know, acknowledging this example, this microeconomy of small grain seeds that farmers can grow and sell and trade, acknowledging that as something that not only is revenue generating, but also engages the the most effective soil conservation practices that you can be doing. Really, you dive in headfirst and embrace that rotation and that soil building component to organics. And I think that's something where when you realize that there's a bunch of pieces to this puzzle, and when they all fit together, it really works. Trusting that if you give it the time and attention to make that puzzle work, um, it's going to do great things for you. Absolutely. And this gets back to that mindset transition, that between the ears part of transition. We've got to throw away that conventional paradigm, that cookie cutter uh, prescribed program that, you know, I've got a program. This is what I do. This is what I do every year. Repeat. And you've got salespeople who are prescribing what you do on your farm and you just go with it. You've got to be flexible and respond to nature, respond to observations, respond to markets, and put all of that together. And that takes, that takes an internal transformation. And, you know, when you try to maximize the potential of your organic system, there are a lot of benefits, both to the system and to your pocketbook. 
Heck yeah. Well, Will dove a little bit deeper into his philosophy on cover crops and emphasized that you don't need to get fancy to be effective. As far as other cover crops, I really try to keep things fairly cheap. So oats are a cover crop that we use a lot of. And typically we'll grow our own oats or try to find a, a farmer in the area that's transitioning and set up a contract with, with him or her to, to buy transitional oats. Our certifier allows us to use transitional cover crops on our organic acres. So that's one way we can try to keep costs down. I'm getting to where I use a lot of transitional soybeans as cover crops. That's another thing to add another uh, to warm season legume that has a fairly good tap root and can put on a, a good chunk of nitrogen and also winter kills. So it's a little easier to manage. And then I, I do experiment with some other things. Buckwheat is another really nice cover crop that I like to work with. And then I also encourage guys to raise some of their own cover crops in their buffer strips. You have to have that buffer zone anyways. Um, you're not able to sell it as organic. Uh, if you can work with your certifier, if they'll let you plant cover crops for harvest that you can then use on your organic acres, uh, that's a really nice way of utilizing ground that in the past we've just been mowing. I just heard something interesting. Will says he's saving his own cover crop seed from his transition acres and using that as a cover crop on his certified acres. Nate, you are a very experienced organic inspector. How does that work with the regulation that requires using certified organic seed on organic acres? Well, I'll start at that last point you made. The regulations do require all certified organic ground to use certified organic seed first and foremost. If certified organic seed isn't available, then you can look for non-treated, non-GMO versions of the seed you're looking to plant to plant on your organic ground. And in doing so, you can consider yourself a potential source. So if you can't find organic seed, you, by most certifiers' accounts, can then use your own non-treated, non-GMO, um, non-certified organic seed, which is what transitional would fall under. But you got to do that search first. You got to make sure you're checking for organic seed. So essentially, if you're saving your own seed, you have to consider yourself a supplier. You're your own supplier. Exactly. I really liked how Will so thoroughly has considered his cover crop strategy. Um, and like everything else in transition, there's a lot of farm specific nuance. So I jumped back to Aaron Butler to dive a little deeper into his cover crop philosophy so we can compare and contrast the two systems. Oh, we do a cover crop a couple of different ways. We do, as I said earlier, with a, this other farm, we, we, the new farm we acquired last year, we, we put on alfalfa and clover with the oats in the spring. And um, typically, if we have a good stand, we'll leave or leave that clover and alfalfa grow through the summer and terminate that in the fall. The, the fall termination never kills 100% of it. It kills about 80% of it. So you wind up with about a 20% stand in the spring, which is thin enough around this part of the world that it's easy to finish or easy to kill off with a, uh, with a finishing tool rather than a primary tillage tool. So you can go in there with a field cultivator and work that a couple of times and take care of your alfalfa and clover. So those crops, you know, alfalfas and clovers, we typically terminate in the fall. Um, we've started doing more summer seeded cover crops. So we'll plant our oats or wheat and not put anything under that small grain 
when the small grain comes off in the summer, we will work the ground, uh, put on some fertility amendments, and then seed our cover crops in the summer. And um, we've used a few different crops for that. Oats work fabulous for a cover crop in the summer. There are our stand, good old standby. Field peas work really good along with the oats. Uh, radishes work really nice. Tillage radishes accompanied with the oats and the peas. Last year, we tried some sun hemp. Didn't have very good luck with that. I think I did a couple things wrong. I think it was a little too dry when we seeded it. And I don't think it competes real well with other with other cover crop species. So we're still experimenting with sun hemp a little bit. But oats, radishes, and peas have been our mainstays for summer seeded crops. And then those three crops in this part of the world, they all winter kill. So once you seed them, they get a real nice growth to them. And then Mother Nature takes care of, of uh, terminating them for you. In the spring, you're all ready to go. It sounds like Aaron's take on cover crops is that your cover crop year is an opportunity to experiment. Exactly. I just don't get why people don't love cover crop years more. They think of it as this thing you have to get through. But I think of it as like your best information gathering period where you're saying, okay, I'm going to terminate this crop probably anyway. And so I'm not going to take it to seed, but let's try something else. I might be, you know, really normally I'm going to be growing corn, soybeans and wheat. But maybe I want to just try out yellow peas this year. It's a potential cash crop. I'm probably just going to take it to flowering and then terminate it. But I think when we think about all of the opportunities that we have for experimentation and to really learn, the cover crop year is something that we just don't want to dismiss. All right, so we've talked a lot about green manure, fertility through cover crops. What about black manure, the stinky kind? <laughs> you know, and what about manure as a source of, of I like to call it the black gold. Thank you. It is one of the best things we have in organics. But I was really excited to talk to both Will and Aaron. Aaron is more in a, um, a, a feeding area of the country. There's a lot of um, livestock yards, a lot of barns. There's manure. Um, Will, not so much. So I was really interested to hear what their different takes on the use of manure and their organic systems is. Um, Aaron went first. I think the, the solution is a little bit of everything. If you kind of look at Mother Nature and the way she farms, that's the way she does it. A little bit of everything. She doesn't use all one thing to make things work. There's always a whole bunch of different stuff in the mix. And I think that's a good way to do it. You know, we grow some of our own nitrogen with alfalfa and clover and field peas and you know, sun hemp. So growing your own nitrogen is a big component of it. Then if I'm going to use inputs that contain nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, I like to use a, a mix of them. Uh, we do use animal manures. We have some conventional neighbors who have more hogs than they need. So we have hog manure available to us in the summertime once in a while. We also have a few confinement cattle operations once in a while that have a little extra. So we'll get some liquid manure in the summertime if it's available. Uh, we bring in some chicken manure from a couple of farms in the in the Midwest that to have extra chicken manure to sell. And we also get some compost from some municipal composting sites. We're close enough to Chicago in the suburbs that there's a few that uh, make compost in the area. And we bring out compost and apply that on some of our farms, too. So it's it's a mix of a lot of different stuff. You know, cover crops are the main one. If you don't have access to a whole bunch of other stuff, other inputs that you can affordably get a hold of, Cover crops are a huge, huge part of the puzzle. So I live in Illinois and out here, we've got a lot of black flat dirt that's prime for corn and soybean production. So we don't have a lot of livestock. 
And so organic growers here, when they're trying to source manure, can run into really expensive shipping bills or just might not even have access to it at all. Well, when we heard from Will earlier about his use of alfalfa and cover crops, another thing that he emphasized is working to farm with the least amount of inputs as possible. He wants to be really pretty self-contained. On our farm, we, we really strive to be as low input as we can. So we do our best to raise the, the highest quality legumes possible to make sure that we're getting nearly all of our in requirements from legume cover crops. So we really focus on raising high quality alfalfa and red clover. And rather than taking that off for hay, we use it as fertility for the soil. So we'll just keep it mowed down to keep the weeds out of it. We'll let it decompose and get back. And over time, we've really been able to build our soils that way. Will have some really great strategies for transitioning their farms, but there's another big component to the equation of transition, and that's the landlord. You know, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, leased ground, rented ground is is uh, more common, especially here in Illinois, than farming owned ground. And in the last episode, I mentioned a farmer who I met at one of our transition workshops. And he's he was really nervous about going organic because his his landlord was the one who was really driving that decision. He was forced to transition like 1800 acres because his landlord was was expecting it. But that's not always the case. Some landlords are actually reluctant and the farmer is the one who's driving wanting to go organic. So with fairly different um, agronomy practices, cover crops, potentially more tillage, different cash crops, how do Will and Aaron work with their respective landlords? Is there anything different about their renting practices or agreements? Super good question. And one that is near and dear to my heart as someone who myself has eight landlords. Um, and so I think it's really important for farmers who are transitioning to organic to work to make sure that their landlord is on board. The biggest thing for landlord relationships is to have a relationship with them. If you only see them two times a year when you go and pay your rent check, it could be really challenging to make that transition. I do think that the landlord should be involved and the landlord should come to the farm and you should have really regular conversations with them and build a build a relationship there. I have, you know, one woman that I farm for who she's pretty much a grandma to me now. I mean, she comes to all of our birthday parties and Christmas and, and things like that. She's really become a part of the family. That's not always common, uh, but that's one of the things that we've been able to do. Another thing I could say is if you have a landlord that's hesitant but curious, start moving down the organic path. Start using more cover crops. Maybe add a, a small grain into the rotation and still work with some of your conventional inputs, but start moving down the organic path. One other thing I found that works well is just to be 
a beautiful farmer. Make sure that you have lots of cover crops that flower that makes your farm stand out as being extremely beautiful in the area. And then utilize some of your buffer strips and filter strips and and just kind of areas that aren't necessarily very tillable. Put them into pollinator strips. My brother has a landlord that just loves going out to the field and walking through some of the prairie strips and picking wildflowers during the summer. I don't know if I can ever get over this this thought of farming beautifully is farming profitably. And really thinking about how, you know, we sometimes get caught up as farmers that we're, especially organic farmers, we just don't want to be the pria in the neighborhood. We don't want to be the weedy farmer. Um, but I think, you know, Will's statement there is kind of a call to action that we need to, as organic farmers, consider that because we're raising an array of crops and we also have cover crops, um, we have the potential to farm these pretty incredible and beautiful rotations. Um, and I think it, I, I would echo well that I have a landlord who I um, grew flax on their land for the first time this year. And, and if you know flax, it has this gorgeous blue flower um, for a few weeks in the summer. And every single day during flowering, I was getting a text from them saying how much fun they were having, running through those flowers with their grandkids, picking bouquets. People were stopping on the road to look at what that, that crazy crop was. But in the end, that is business building. That's a relationship building opportunity where that landlord finds more value in the relationship with you as a farmer than just the rent check you're sending them. Absolutely. I've had the wonderful opportunity to go out to the farm that Will's brother Dallas has where he's got those pollinator strips. It's stunning. It's utterly stunning. And they have a multi-season mix planted. So it's blooming from, you know, the first flush in the spring to the last frost or the first frost in the fall. And I hear from a lot of farmers who've been farming organically for years that there's something more gratifying, something more deeply gratifying about being an organic farmer than they realized that they were missing when they were still conventional. And it comes from those moments. It comes from that sense of being a part of letting nature heal and letting nature show its abundance and its wonder. And landlords care a lot about that. A lot of times landlords are absentee. You know, here in Illinois, we've got the big city of Chicago and most of the landlords or many of the landlords, they're living in the suburbs. They're, they come down to drive by their farm. And if they see stunning flowers in bloom, interesting crops, and they're struck by that beauty, like you said, Nate, it gives them more than just the cash that they're getting off of that rent. Aesthetics mean a lot. And the way that their ground is presented to the community and to the neighborhood says a lot about what their values are. Well, I was wondering if it's just... Dallas and Wills in my experience, or if this is an experience of other farmers. So I, I uh, tossed this question to Aaron and um, he pointed out that as he got established in organics, oftentimes landlords were coming to him, wanting him to rent their ground. You've got to find landowners that are interested in the organic thing. If they're just doing this to make money and you're out just, you know, renting farms to try to get more land and you're just dealing with landlords who are going to look to 
maximize their return on investment, as farm managers like to call that, uh, you're going to have a real difficult time dealing with landowners like that because they're not going to be very sympathetic to your problems. The landlords that, that we have acquired the last few years have been people who have come to us and said, you know, we want our farm farmed organically. Would you be interested? So that makes it a little easier because then you can negotiate with them. And typically we get a little bit of a break during the transition years, probably not as much as we should because some of these farms are in pretty tough shape. But, you know, I, I, I still I still view it as a long term investment and a relationship. These The people that have come to us are local folks who are, you know, families that own farmland. It's not investors from overseas who are looking to maximize returns. It's local people looking to develop a relationship with another local dude. So I kind of enjoy the opportunity to get to build relationships with with families like that that are local families. So, you know, we we bite the bullet during transition and and spend a lot of money, invest a lot of money in, in fixing farms up to get them to where we think they can be profitable in the future. Oh, I love to hear stories of communities and relationships being built around organic farms. Uh, but Organic farming is a business. It, it's full of relationships and community building, but it's it's business. And in business, you need a lease. You know, if you're renting acres, you want to you want to get that written down. Um, here in Illinois, annual leases are really common, and that uh, can be challenging for farmers to be able to make the investments that they need to make in an organic system, where you're thinking multiple years out and not just on an annual cycle. Absolutely. And we'll actually share some thoughts on lease structures for organic farms. As far as lease structure goes, I've seen a couple different options. Typically, you'll want to set up your farm into a long-term lease. I normally say a five-year lease minimum to get through transition and then two years of organic. Uh, I've seen farms go from cash rent to share crop, and, and that does work really well. I've also seen lease structures go from a straight cash rent to a flexible cash rent where it's a, a discounted base rate and then they set a threshold then it's a, like a premiums paid if the net income is over a certain threshold. And one interesting thing that I would say I haven't heard as much is that Aaron unlike Will, actually prefers shorter-term leases. We don't really have really, really long-term leases with anybody. The longest lease we have is three years, I think. But I have I have a lot of year-to-year -year leases with landlords that I have long-term relationships with just because markets fluctuate so much and so fast in, in these days that I don't like the risk of being locked into a four-year lease, you know, if, if prices crash. And at the same time, I don't like my landlord being locked into a four-year lease if prices go through the roof. You know, I want to be able to offer them a little more rent too, just to try to make it a little fairer for them. So I have a lot of land that's just year-to-year -year leases, which has been working out pretty well. That's an interesting perspective that Aaron raises. More commonly, I come across farmers who are feeling like they're not able to get long enough leases to, to feel secure. And being able to make some of the investments that are required, especially of a three-year transition. If you only have a three-year lease, then there's the chance that you make it through the end of transition and you don't have the ground to realize the, the return on that investment. So uh, to a certain extent, I respectfully disagree with Aaron's perspective. I would 
I advise new organic farmers to, to get up to a five-year lease if they're able to, because that allows them to be able to access things like funds from Equip if they're wanting to put in fencing to have a rotational grazing system along with their crops. So there's some opportunities that can be lost with, with having shorter leases. Another eventuality that, that is common and increasing in frequency is that many landlords are um, you know, at the end of their life and potentially may pass on while you are the tenant on the land. And so there would be an estate process that would need to, to happen. And so in the event that a landlord does pass away, it's important to have a lease that protects your investment going forward. Even if you have an excellent relationship with that family, it's, it's important to have it written down. So Nate, back in uh, episode four, we, we had the general theme that organic is going to require more labor. And, you know, there's more tractor driving and it's, it's reasonable to expect that a farmer will drive over that field for more time when they're organic than they would conventional. Did Aaron have any thoughts on that labor question? Well, I was, I was stoked to ask Aaron this question because when you look at how much he's grown, he started out 500 acres, 160 acres transitioning, and he's now running 3,600 acres. So I posed that question to him. So at this point, it's myself, my friend Rich, and my daughter has joined our operation. Uh, she's 20, uh, 24 years old, uh, works full-time at the farm. Uh, we have a young man who works here full-time now, too. His name is Alex. Alex started last year with us. And um, we have another uh, employee named Roberto, and Roberto is our, our go-to man for doing all the little piddly jobs around the, around the farm and all, all year long. So uh, there would be, how, what's that coming? One, two, three. There's five of us right now working on the farm, I guess. And um, we do have some seasonal help once in a while, mostly in the summer. You know, conventional farmers, summer is when they all go fishing. But um, for us, summertime is just, you know, tear your hair, try to figure out how to get everything done. And I actually have a couple of neighbors who are conventional farmers and, you know, they don't have anything going on in the summer. So we usually lean on them to get a little help driving equipment and doing extra things in the summertime because we got so much going on with oat harvest and, you know, working in cover crops and spreading fertilizer. It gets to be a pretty hectic time. So July, August, and September are awfully busy around here compared to conventional agriculture. And in terms of labor comparing comparisons, you know, my neighbor right across the road who we trade labor with, you know, he farms about the same amount as I do with just him and his nephew. He's got two people and, you know, gets as much done as we do with five people. So it's a much different labor situation compared to a conventional farm. Aaron threw out there that with an interesting twist, maybe needing more labor actually has some positive community effects. Our farm is supporting, you know, five people and, and his is supporting two. So I, I think it's a, a better thing for a community to have more and more folks involved in operations in the country. You know, I, I know it's still it's still consolidation. You know, it's still one farm operation under basically one guy's management, but it's still five families instead of, or, you know, five individuals instead of two individuals. So, you know, it's, it's not like the olden days where the 3,600 acres I farm would be farmed by, you know, 20 different guys, but, you know, at least it's better than the conventional model of one dude doing it with one employee. So I, I kind of like the fact that it's more labor intensive. I think that's good for a community. I got to say, that I think I am a, a business owner. I own a farm. I am trying to make a profit. 
But I hear so loud and clear what Aaron's saying, because honestly, I don't really like to farm without my buddies. I want to be able to have someone there farming with me, someone to bounce ideas off, someone to get really stressed out with when things are going wrong and to high five when things just when we sunk them, when it's going really well. And I think that in general, when I, I spend a, all of my time in rural America, and when I look at organic farms where there's a little bit of a concentration, say maybe two or three generations, some cousins all having their organic farm, I just see this vibrancy that when people are needed, when the land needs people, the entire community thrives at a whole different level than if we're just trying to reduce labor and maximize profit. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you have multiple generations being able to farm together, there's more opportunity to bring the kids onto the farm, to bring the grandkids onto the farm, for families to be able to stay in rural communities. And we no longer have that flight of the generation going you know, away to college and then never coming back because there aren't opportunities back at home. I am a perfect example of that happening in a family. My family was conventional corn and soy and had about 1,500 acres under management. There was absolutely no way that I could go back to the farm. There wasn't room for me. There wasn't the margin that would allow me to work on the farm. So I was pushed. I was, I was told, get out, go to college. So I did. And then the crash of 2008 happened and I was like, what am I going to do with myself? And that was a long excursion that eventually brought me back to a completely different farming situation. I essentially am like a, I'm a multi-generation farm family who's like a first generation farmer. Like I'm not getting any of the benefits of having that land and the knowledge of the community. I'm in a totally different state and gosh, organics offers a solution to that conundrum. And they, it spreads to the whole community. You know, um, on one of our episodes, we heard from Joe Miranda at the Organic Trade Association that cited a study that showed that poverty rates decrease in communities that have large amounts of organic farming in them, that incomes increase. And these are not the farm families. This is the whole community that having an organic presence in the community can transform a community. Think about our rural schools. We could have more kids in the schools and reverse that trend of graduation sizes decreasing and our schools being bankrupt. And just the amazing things that happen with the community when you have more money, more profitability staying in the community. Well, I think that's exactly Kind of the the question is, if you need a little bit more labor, you're also needing more members of your community to stick around. You need more people. You need more family members to be around. And when we're looking at the the increased profitability of these organic farms, um, while they do require more labor, that increased profitability means the entire community is thriving better. There's more money everywhere in the community and for everyone. And when we really consider the social implications of farming organically, we're looking at a system that revives rural America, profitable farms, employed communities, communities that are really on the up. And that's something that I, I just can't express how excited it gets me. That's something that describes a rural America that I am just stoked to live in. And as someone who has been in the organic game a long time, has done a pretty 
deliberate job bringing his community into the folds of organic farming by employing neighbors, making room for the next generation. I think Aaron has some really interesting thoughts on where he sees organic headed. Now, when we first started back in the mid-90s, there was four of us in DeKalb County that uh, all kind of started at the same time. And um, one of those guys uh, quit and moved away. But since then, there's now uh, like 12 of us in the area that are farming organically. So there's been people getting into it, you know, little by little. And it, and I think part of it is some of those folks were people that were just watching us to see what was going to happen. <laughs> you know, we've been doing it for 20 years and we're still here. So I guess they figure it might be, maybe, maybe it will work. Hearing from these farmers who have lived transition and lived being certified organic, it's it's just such a testament to how realistic and how possible transitioning to organic is. It's doable. It's worth it. And I think about if we were sort of to, to summarize the takeaways from this discussion, I mean, there is a lot. We covered a lot of ground, which I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, but a big one is think of this transition as an investment. Think that you're just putting a down payment on that fertilizer bill, which is really going to be yielding investments when you are able to get that great premium for the organic corn. Be ready to experiment. Look at that cover crop year as an opportunity to try different things and chase those markets that are hot and new and ready to pay a premium for your crop. And I think a big takeaway was plan to grow a lot of your nitrogen. Even if you have access to manure, think of manure as that sweet, sweet cream on the top. But your foundation, you know, the foundation of your Sunday is going to be your legumes and growing your nitrogen. And to that last point, think about transition as a step towards building your community. You know, meet the other organic farmers who are who have taken this jump or are transitioning themselves. And I just, when I go out and have a really bad day in the field and, you know, I just cannot figure out a pest problem. I just can't figure out why this weed is there. There's just nothing better than to be perplexed and be able to pick up the phone and call your buddy who's also going through the organic transition or who made it to the other side and is there to give you some anecdotes for how to get through it. All right. I'm going to ask it really bluntly. Is organic transition a trap? Organic transition is so doable, but you've got to take the time and consideration to make sure that you're giving and exploring all of the potential possibilities to make a transition that works for your farm. If you could change one thing about your experience transitioning to organic, Nate, what would it be? I think I might have had a different experience. If I had had access to well-trained, organic, positive, enthusiastic advisors, if there was some group of agronomists or an agronomist that I could just call up who was familiar with my area, but who was also really rooting for organics and able to say, yeah, there's all these nuanced, complicated scenarios we can work out. Let's come up with some. I think it would have been a much less steep learning curve. And my learning curve was all trial and error, really. And so I would have had less error and a little bit more success in, in getting to that other side. 
here, here. Technical assistance and advice is so easily accessed on the conventional side. It's everywhere. There are so many learned people who have a stake in what each farmer is doing and are there to back them up, to scout the field, to tell them how to fix it, give them a prescription. We don't have that in organic yet and we need it. We absolutely need it. You know, I I feel like we've done a pretty complete job at exploring in depth these six criticisms of organic agriculture in this series. And um, these are really big questions. And, you know, there's no hard and fast answers in organic. You ask a question and you get a little nugget of an answer, but it oftentimes leads to another question. And that's really fun and exciting if you have the right mindset for it. So at the end of the day, what I hope our listeners conclude coming out of this, this season is that organic is really possible. We can scale it, we can figure it out, and it's fundamentally worth it. But it is complicated, and it's hard, and it's messy, and we really do need more advisors and crop consultants who are part of a really strong network to support organic farmers to make it all work. Will brings us home with some more wisdom on that last point. They really need to start building a community or get involved in a community. Start to build a nice network of people that they can talk to, bounce ideas off of, and learn from. That is really going to help you the most, more than any tillage tool, more than any market, is to have a network when you're transitioning into organic. I'll also say that unlike our area of conventional farmers, the organic farming community is very open, very sharing, very excited to see more organic farmers. So if you currently have rough relationships with your conventional neighbors, and if your area is, is a high compete rent area, getting that network of people that you can talk to and rely on it and get counsel from is going to be very uplifting. That was episode six of The Dirt on Organic Farming, a new podcast by the Organic Agronomy Training Service. OATS provides organic grain production training to agronomists, advisors, and crop consultants so that farmers will have better access to reliable, science-based advice for their unique farm operation. Special thanks to Ryan Corey, Ben Bull, Aaron Butler, and Will Glazek. This episode was produced by Michaela Elias. For more information, go to www.organicagronomy.org. Oats is brought to you with funding support from Cliff Bar. Cliff Bar's journey to use organic ingredients started in 2003. We've learned along the journey that organic can be a catalyst for good. It is key to creating a healthier, more just, and sustainable food system for all of us. Organic farming is good for people and the planet. We've also learned that organic farming is innovative and can play a critical role in feeding a growing world. In order to do that, organic has to continue to improve. That's why we are the number one private funder of organic research in the U.S. and fund projects like OATS. We are proud to be working along with all of you to ensure that organic is here to stay for good and for generations to come.
Oats is brought to you with funding support from King Arthur Baking Company, who has been sharing the joy of baking since 1790. A certified B Corp, headquartered in Vermont, King Arthur is the ultimate baking resource, providing the highest quality ingredients for the most delicious baked goods. As a 100% employee-owned baking company, we believe in the power of baking to make a difference for our employee owners, the larger baking community, and the planet. We strive to be a force for good in all that we do, from cultivating a workplace that embraces differences and prioritizes trust, to teaching children across the country how to bake bread from scratch, to partnering with farmers and suppliers who share our vision for a greener planet. OATS is a programmatically independent consortium that is fiscally sponsored by the Organic Trade Association. OTA serves as an anchor funder for OATS through its industry-invested Grow Organic Research, Promotion, and Education program. Grow Organic's Technical Assistance Program area seeks to meet goals of scalability, regional, and production system diversity in technical assistance for organic and transitioning farmers nationwide. Top donors to the Grow Organic Technical Assistance Program area help make OATS possible. Thank you to General Mills, Cliff Bar, Stonyfield, King Arthur Baking Company, and Organic Valley. I'm Mallory Krieger. And I'm Nate Palpal. Till next time, thanks for listening.